Shalom, friends. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Access. My name is Timothy, and I'm happy to be studying through the scriptures with you today. Have you ever created a family tree? How many generations back could you record? I used to love listening to my grandparents tell me stories about all my ancestors. They explained to me who was who and how we were all connected. I remember interviewing them and asking about the, like the birth order of their siblings and, and the spellings of all their real names, as well as the nicknames that they used. I learned about, you know, the sort of work and the education and the different places that my relatives lived and, and who married who. I don't know why I was so intrigued by these genealogies, but I must say, I learned a lot more about myself as I came to appreciate the journey of the family that I come from. Bev and I spend a lot of time telling stories about our own families of origin, and our kids love listening and laughing when we do share. Every now and then, my kids would run up to me laughing in disbelief after their grandma, my mother, had just told them about how silly I was as a kid, and how much they are just like me. <laughs> Some parents can't wait till their kids turn 18, you know, and move out of the house. And some kids, they also couldn't wait until they're old enough to you know, go off to college and leave home. But no matter where life takes you, whatever family you grew up knowing, like it or not, they usually leave a lasting impression on the person you see yourself to be. Our study today is called A Family Divided. Now, if you need a handout for today's Access Learn study, please visit our Facebook group, Connections Ministries of Canada, and you'll find all our studies under the Files tab. Also visit our website at connectionsministries.com. Today we're continuing our study through Genesis, starting in chapter 10 through to the end of chapter 11. However, we're not going to be reading the entire passage together. I would suggest that you do have a Bible handy to follow along as you listen. Or better yet, why not take some time afterwards to, to gather and study with your own access groups and observe the complete chapters together. Now let's get started. A family divided. Here in Genesis chapter 10, we're introduced to what is often called the table of nations. Most people tend to just brush over this chapter, right? Because it's essentially this list of just really difficult names and um, names that don't really seem to matter. So we won't be reading that for you today and we'll just spare you all that confusion. But to God, family lines are always important. This table of nations found in Genesis 10 is actually the most accurate and complete document of its kind pertaining to the origination of nations and races. And here it's starting with Noah's three sons that ended up populating the whole earth. Now, it wouldn't be inaccurate to say that um, Shem populated Asia, Ham populated Africa, and Yafet populated Europe. In verses 2 through 5, we're introduced to Yafet's sons, and from his sons come the Welsh, the Russians, Medes, Greeks, Macedonians, the Germans, Celts, Armenians, and Spaniards. A few notable names from his lineage would be Gomer, Magog, and Tarshish. In verses 8 through 20, we're introduced to Ham's family, and it goes into a lot more detail here. Now, Ham had four sons. Cush settled Ethiopia, Mitzrayim settled Egypt, Put settled Libya, and Canaan settled Canaan. One of the most important figures that rises up from the line of Ham is a man named 
Nimrod. He's a son of Cush. The Cushites were Ethiopians, a race of black-skinned people. So Nimrod, the son of Cush, was a black man. I'm well aware that by pointing that out, it might strike up some issues for some people. Why did Tim bother saying that Nimrod was a black man? Well, I wanted to point out that the Bible does not deal with racial issues in the sense that the West does. Skin color denoted no racial superiority. Historically, it was nationality and tribal affiliation that made enemies of these different groups. It was never determined by skin color or by racial features. Now, Nimrod was the first powerful ruler on earth. He was called a mighty hunter before Adonai. His kingdom began in Babel in the land of Shinar. In verse 11, we read about a guy named Asher that went out from that land and, and built Nineveh. Now, who's Asher? Well, that's the interesting thing in the Bible. Sometimes it has different names, but they're names in different languages. So Asher is actually the Assyrian name for Nimrod. It's the same person. So we see here in verses 8 and 9 how Nimrod was just spreading all over the place, building up his kingdom and take, establishing all these different cities from Babel or Babylonia all the way to Nineveh and beyond. In verses 13 and 14, we learn that from the line of Mitzrayim come the Philistines. Now, the modern term for Philistines is Palestine. Interestingly, the Palestinians today claim to be descendants of the Philistines, but the modern Palestinians are Arabs. And these Arabs, they come from the line of Shem, the Shemites, the line of good. But now these modern Palestinians choosing to associate with the Philistines, they identify with the line of Ham, the line of evil. So many Palestinian Arabs have given up their heritage of the line of good, Shem, to join the line of evil, Ham. And they've also given up the Semite god, Yehoveh or Yahweh, for a false god, Allah, as have most Arabs. Now they will be judged for it, so we really need to pray for them to wake up to this fact before it's too late. In verses 15 through 18, we see this list of tribes that are spawned by Canaan. And later during the exodus from Egypt, we're going to see these names reappear as enemies of the Israelites, who will try to keep them out of the promised land. Verses 21 to 31 simply list the, the descendants of Shem, but we'll be studying more about Shem's line as we get into chapter 11. Chapter 10 ends in 32, saying, These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations, in their nations. From these, the nations of the earth were divided up after the flood. Right now, my wife Beverly will be reading from Genesis chapter 11 and only verses 1 through 9 from the complete Jewish Bible. The whole earth used the same language, the same words. It came about that as they traveled from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and lived there. They said to one another, Come, let's make bricks and bake them in the fire. So they had bricks for building stone and clay for mortar. Then they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that has its top reaching up into heaven, so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered all over the earth. Adonai came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. 
Adonai said, Look, the people are united. They all have a single language, and see what they're starting to do. At this rate, nothing they set out to accomplish will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse their language, so that they won't understand each other's speech. So from there, Adonai scattered them all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. For this reason, it is called Bavel, confusion, because there Adonai confused the language of the whole earth, and from there Adonai scattered them all over the earth. So here in chapter 11, verse 1, the whole earth used the same language, the same words. This tells us that the people were very slowly dispersing and that they had stayed quite linked to this uh, common language because they didn't really separate from one another. They just expanded like urban sprawl. In verse 2, there's this phrase that says that they traveled from the east, which can be quite confusing since the land of Shinar, or modern-day Iraq, was located southeast of where they traveled from. See, when I hear from the east, I'm thinking that, okay, they're traveling from the east and going west. But here, the reason that we have this reference of moving from the east is that by going east from where God placed them, in essence, they're, they're moving further away from God. Remember when God sent Adam and Hava out of that special place, that Garden of Eden, that he had sent them out and banished them to the east of the garden. And then when Cain killed his brother, um, God sent Cain out of the land of Eden and, and out toward the east. So this designation of going from the east was symbolic of their desire to, to gain independence from God. I remember in the days of my youth when I just couldn't wait to leave home. I just, um, I, I love my family, but I wanted to establish myself and, and gain independence from the authority of my parents. You know, I wanted to, to figure life out for myself and make, make a name for myself. You know, I had dreams, big dreams, you know, and I set some goals and I tried to try to make those dreams a reality. Of course, I messed up a lot along the way. But it seems that no matter how much I messed up and all the stupid choices that I made, in hindsight, God had a hand in everything and, and he was part of the journey every step along the way, even in those times that I was trying to gain independence from God myself. So here we have these people after having traveled from the east and southeast down to this land of Shinar, they decide that they're going to stay a while and they're establishing their homes. So in verse 3, we see them deciding to make bricks. Now, why make bricks? Why not use stones? They're more durable and more permanent, right? Well, here in the plain of the land of Shinar, there was very shallow soil and there were no quarries of stones here. So by their own efforts, they dug up the ground and they made bricks. And they would bake them in fire in order to strengthen them and make them durable like stones. And then they take this clay for mortar. And the clay that they used was this black slime that was um, bubbling up from the soil. It was a mineral pitch, you know, so that water wouldn't permeate through it. And when it hardens, it would form this very strong cement. And it was good for buildings and good for roads. Essentially, it was asphalt. Now with their superior building materials, under the leadership of this powerful Nimrod, they decided that they were going to build a tower 
as a monument to their pride, to their own abilities, one that would enhance their fame and, and for their reputation. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And the tower alone, this wasn't their single act of rebellion. It was their human pride that led them to defy God. You see, they refused to move on. They wanted to gather together here instead of scatter and fill the earth as they had been instructed by God. So they disobeyed God, and they also attempted to steal his glory. In verse 5, Adonai came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. Now this phrase, Adonai came down, is an anthropomorphic expression. See, Adonai is not a, a human that he would move in the same way that we do. So this anthropomorphic expression reveals that nothing that the people had done had escaped his attention. You ever feel like that? No matter what you're doing, you, you know that God sees. You know that he knows. God didn't have to move to know what was happening. But he did react to this rebellion in a way that the people clearly understood. Verse 6, Adonai said, Look, the people are united. They all have this single language and see what they're starting to do. At this rate, nothing they set out to accomplish will be impossible for them. Now, why was this a problem? That they were unified. The Hebrew word used here for unified is echad, which is an attribute attached to God himself. Echad literally means one. The people were organically connected. They were inseparable. And God didn't like this. Now, unity in and of itself, it's not a bad thing, okay? The key is what or whom the unifying agent is. So, here we see that consensus and compromise, this is man's kind of unity. It's mankind that they're holding hands and they're saying, Oh, we are one, we are one. But God's unity is unity in him. These people were united with each other, but they wanted to be independent of God. They were echad with each other, but they were echad in disobedience to God. God saw that they had this superior building material. He saw that they had a will and a desire to really make a name for themselves, and they would stop at nothing. They wanted to build that tower up. There was so much pride, so much arrogance. Nothing was going to stop them. Here's a bit of perspective. This was only two generations after the Great Flood. And already, they're rebelling against God, defying what God had ordered them to do, taking matters into their own hands. I mean, the wickedness was just astounding. Remember, God had just cleansed the earth of this wickedness because man chose to live their own way. And here, two generations after the flood, man is doing the exact same thing, unified their own will against God's. The way that we see these people behaving isn't very different from the cry that we hear in society today. Everywhere you go, whenever there's a movement, unity, unity, like everybody's crying for unity, but this is man's unity. In Babel, the people had a leader, Nimrod, and they had a vision to build the tower and a purpose to make a name for themselves, and they thought that this was good. And you know, since they all thought it and they all wanted it, they had this unity. But when we examine the scriptures, 
we don't see God unifying, not like this. We see God doing something completely different. And here's a principle that he always operates by. We see God dividing, electing, and separating. Once again, we see God dividing, electing, and separating. Later on in the scriptures, you see Jehovah constantly telling people to separate themselves from unclean and unholy people, to separate the pure and the impure things like, like food and animals and, and behaviors. And separation was his intention for Nimrod and all of his followers. In verses 7 through 9, God divides them by confusing their language and they spoke in different tongues. And God elects all the people to carry out what he wanted them to accomplish in the first place, to multiply and fill the earth. And God separates them by scattering them all over the earth. So we see God dividing, electing, and separating. Keep an eye out for this pattern of God's when you read through the rest of scriptures. I guarantee you're going to see it many more times. Let's look at unity just a little bit closer. If man's unity looks like compromise and consensus, just this unanimous agreement from one individual man to another individual man to another individual man, it's just a whole bunch of individuals agreeing on something, and they call that unity. And they're just holding hands and everybody's happy. This sort of unity is completely dependent on man. What happens when one of them disagrees what if there's no more unanimous consensus? The unity is broken. Man is fickle, always changing their, their interests and their affections and, and their loyalties. But let's look at God's unity. God's unity is unity in him. What does that look like? Instead of man standing side by side, holding hands, saying, we are one, it's every individual holding hands with Christ, with Messiah Yeshua. And like the hub of a spoked wheel, he is the point of unity. Amen? In John 17, verses 20 to 23, just before his arrest and crucifixion, we see Yeshua praying for Echad. He says, I pray not only for these but also for those who will trust in me because of their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are united with me and I with you. I pray that they may be united with us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, so that they may be one, just as we are one. I united with them and you with me so that they may be completely one, and the world thus realize that you sent me, and that you have loved them just as you have loved me. Yeshua the Messiah was praying for his, not just his followers at the time, but for all the millions down through the centuries who would come to trust in him. The scriptures tell us that in God's design, when a man joins himself to a woman, the two become one flesh. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, it says, But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit. At one point, a group of Pharisees approached Yeshua and challenged him on the topic of divorce. 
and Yeshua was explaining to them that divorce was never part of God's design. In Matthew 19, verse 6, he ends off saying, Thus they are no longer two, but one, echad. So then, no one should split apart what God has joined together. The same thing applies here spiritually. When we are echad with God, we don't whore ourselves and let man separate that union. In this story of the Tower of Babel, God demonstrated how he would divide and separate that which man will unify. And the dividing mechanism that he used was language. And then in the New Testament, we have a story in Acts chapter 2 verses 1 to 21, where God reverses what he had done at the Tower of Babel. This story takes place during the festival of Shavuot, or the, the Feast of Weeks, or more commonly known as Pentecost. This is just over seven weeks or 50 days from the time that Yeshua was praying for all the future believers to be Echad. And what we see here in this story is that all the believers were gathered together in one place. The Hebrew word for together is Yachad. Unity, Echad. Together, Yachad. And since this was one of the three pilgrim festivals where the Jewish males would um, be required to travel back to Yerushalayim, that's why we see them all gathered Yachad in this place. As they're sitting there, all of a sudden, the sound of a mighty wind, a ruach, comes rushing through this place. And then what appeared to be like tongues of fire start flickering over their heads. It separates and starts flickering over each of their heads. And in verse 4, it says that they were filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in different languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. So one minute they're physically sitting Yachad, and now they're sitting Gam Yachad. Gam Yachad denotes um, a dualism, that they were physically together, but now also spiritually unified. Now they were Echad in spirit because they were filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. They were one in spirit. So at the Tower of Babel, God divides and separates man by, by confusing their language so they couldn't understand each other. And then here, 2,000 years later, we see God unifying what he had divided and separated by giving utterance through his Spirit so that these disciples would be able to speak all these different languages, but people could understand them. And God was unifying people by his spirit. Just an interesting note that I took here was when you look at the Tower of Babel, they were using bricks that were strengthened by fire in order to build this monument that would um, edify them and make their reputation known to give them a name. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, it reads, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by people but chosen by God and precious to him, you yourselves, as living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to the Kohanim set apart for God, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to him through Yeshua the Messiah. 
Here at Pentecost, there's this mention of the tongues like fire that were over the heads of the disciples, which strengthened these living stones to speak boldly by the Ruach HaKodesh that unified them. They went out preaching and declaring the kingdom and making Jehovah God known. They were being built into a spiritual house for the glory and the reputation and the name, the Shem of God. How awesome is that? One of the things that I love seeing throughout scripture is how God always wanted to strengthen the people that he was using. Whenever they started losing heart, he wanted to tell them to take courage because he was with them. He gives his spirit to strengthen us, guys. This is amazing. And he wants us to have enough courage to stand apart, to to be divided, to be holy as he is holy. He wants us to separate ourselves from all the things that are unclean and wicked, the things of this world, all the things that are just not of him. Once again, throughout scripture, we see God dividing, electing, and separating. And in the book of Revelation, we see the vision that God had given John to record. And in chapter 18, it says, After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority. The earth was lit up by his splendor. He cried out in a strong voice, She has fallen, she has fallen, Bavel the Great. She has become a home for demons, a prison for every unclean spirit, a prison for every unclean, hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of God's fury, caused by her whoring. Yes, the kings of the earth went whoring with her, and from her unrestrained love of luxury, the world's businessmen have grown rich. Then I heard another voice out of heaven say, My people, come out of her, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not be infected by her plagues, for her sins are a sticky mass piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Wow. Friends, this is God's cry. He's crying out for us to come out of Babylon. The judgment against Babel is against her pride her ruthlessness and greed and materialism. And this is a just judgment, and it's praised by God's people, but mourned by the wicked who share her values. Where do you stand today? I think we're going to stop our study on this note today. I'd like to leave you with the words of James that he wrote in his letter to the 12 tribes that were scattered throughout the world. I'm reading from James chapter 4, verses 4 to 10. It says, You adulterous people, you unfaithful wives, don't you know that loving the world is hating God? Whoever chooses to be the world's friend makes himself God's enemy. Or do you suppose the scripture speaks in vain when it says that there's a spirit in us which longs to envy? But the grace he gives is greater, which is why it says, God opposes the arrogant, but to the humble he gives grace. Therefore, submit to God. Moreover, Take a stand against the adversary, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and he will come close to you. Clean your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded people. Wail, mourn, sob. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Friends, Jehovah God wants his people to be washed clean of all wicked, evil, unrighteousness. He wants his family to be echad with him and his Messiah Yeshua. 
and what God has put together, let no man separate. Friends, thank you so much for joining us for today's Access Learn study. It's always a joy to be able to get around God's word and learn more about his plan and his purposes and about his amazing love and his promises. I'm so excited to see where he'll lead us next. May the grace of our Lord Yeshua and the Shalom of God our Father be with all. Amen.